Hello, hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 24 from Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elvick, a gardener, freelance writer, and a garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. And this podcast is produced with the help of my sponsor, Genus Gardenware. Genus are based in the beautiful Cotswold countryside, and their range is designed by gardeners for keen gardeners who understand how the right sort of clothes can make gardening more comfortable and even more enjoyable. As you all know, gardening is all about kneeling and bending, stretching and walking and being outdoors in all weathers and all seasons. The clothes gardeners wear have to work for all activities and in all conditions, and this is what Genus Gardenware are good at. Have a look at what they've got to offer by visiting genus.gs. My guest today is Tamsin Westhorpe, a writer, a speaker, a gardener, who with Uncle Raymond manages the popular Stocktonbury Gardens near Lempster. Tamsin is a hands-on gardener who's got a varied and successful lifelong career in the horticultural industry. She's worked as a parks greenkeeper, an interior landscaper, a lecturer, and as the editor of the English Garden magazine, and also as a judge at RHS Chelsea. Her aim is to demystify gardening, and she hopes that reflecting on her career will encourage others to jump into the wheelbarrow and choose horticulture as a life partner. Success in 2020 with her book, A Diary of a Modern Country Gardener, has led to her being asked to write her latest book, Grasping the Nettle, Tales from a Modern Country Gardener. And this is what her lovely publisher's orphan have to say. Tamsin's delightful, funny memoir of making a living with mud permanently under her fingernails will delight any reader. A cast of colourful characters pepper the pages of her hapless horticultural exploits, which range from dispensing gnome placement advice on live TV to how to deal with nudist neighbours or the inside scoop on why roses surrounding the beautiful manicured English lawn bowling greens grow quite so vigorously. Tamsin, good morning. Good morning. This is very exciting. <laughs> it is, I know. Did I get most of that right? Was it, was I lying or was that all spot no, on? No, I think that's fantastic. And I think the most important thing you've said is how important the right gardening clothes are. I've definitely <laughs> mentioned that in my book. <laughs> yes, I think all of us have spent far too long traipsing around the garden in uh, sodden denim, haven't we? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Any any mountain climber will tell you not to wear denim on the hills because uh, yes, it's not it's not good. Um, so uh, Sam's in this lovely new book, grasping the nettles, tale from a mo- tales from a modern country gardener. And as I mentioned, that's from Orphans Publishing. And it's not out yet, but it probably will be by the time people are here us talking. It's it's uh, out on October the sixth, twenty twenty two. For anybody listening in the future. Um, it's an amazing book, Tamsin. I, I, I haven't had the physical copy. Your publishers were so lovely and sent me a, a PDF. Um, but uh, but uh, it, it was a fantastic read. Now, in the introduction, um, you, you, you look back to your childhood, to the 1970s. We, we, we've all been there. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I seem to remember there was a program on television where they put, do you remember that back to, back to the seventies series or back to the sixties and back to the fifties? Yes. Well, yes. all the children who were teenagers voted the seventies as the best decade to live in. 
Oh, I think they're right. I, I, I think they're probably right. Um, and, and and you sound like you lived the perfect life almost, you know, a little bit um, Barbara and Tom. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you had Margot and Jerry as your neighbours, but it, it sounds, sounds amazing. You, you talk about how um, in, the, in this sort of in these modern times, we sort of lost a connection to time. And I think you sort of put that down to things like the Internet, emails, social media and how, you know, as a youngster, you, you know, you, you'd be happy to spend hours doing what to, in these, this day and age would seem like sort of fairly menial sort of tasks or hobbies. Yeah, I mean, I think as we get older, we all say, gosh, the day has flown by. And I'm sure that's an age thing. <laughs> but I do remember so often sort of lying in a field or lying on a lawn, picking the petals off daisies. And there just seemed less pressure on time. I know I was a child, but I do feel as if everything is so quick, you know, so speedy. Um, and I think for horticulturalists, gardening needs to be something that's it's a bit slower pace so you can take in everything around you. Um, and appreciate the seasons so I think yeah everything's just got slightly frantic for me <laughs> yeah yeah I think you're right I mean I think as a gardener I mean you 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 at one point I mean I don't think we're going to quite touch on it but you actually went to art college for a period of time and obviously yeah. as an artist you have to have a, a, a degree of that in that producing a painting or a sculpture or whatever takes time but producing a garden takes a very long time. Um, you know, we can stick plants where we want them, but we've still got to wait for them to grow and so on. So, uh, yes, I think it, it's probably good training, isn't it, to uh, have that sort of that upbringing. Where, yeah, um, and we probably grew up in the time when things like makeovers, quick fixes were things that were never mentioned. No. You know, you, would, you knew you had to wait six months or, you know, so long to see the results. And we were quite happy with that somehow. It was, it was good times, definitely. So chapter one, uh, daisy petals and dandelion clocks, something we've just sort of um, touched on. But I, I just just now I wanted to mention the chickens in your life. Your mum was a fan of chickens, wasn't she? Um, and many, many a time you'd be, well, sounds like all the time you'd have chickens in the back of the car. Yeah, so she used to collect different breeds. And I think she used to go and do talks, as we do talks for gardening, or go off to little shows and events. So for it just felt like our entire childhood was spent with some chickens in the boot of the car and they were all over the house as well. So she'd have all the little chicks in little cages in the kitchen, little new, you know, newspaper. And yeah, it was, it was lovely. Um, yeah, definitely. She used to be called chicken Joyce wherever she went, which uh, was quite entertaining. So yeah, chickens played a massive part in my childhood. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, other animals too. I mean, reading reading through the book, I mean, you sound like you're a bit of a cross between Gerald Durrell, Huckleberry Finn, and um, Minnie the Minx. I mean, you you got up yeah. you got up to all sorts. I mean, didn't you keep grass snakes and mice? Yes. Yeah, so, like um, unlike my sisters, who probably aren't quite so into collecting things from the wild, um, I used to just love it. I would always have a fox's biscuit tin under the bed with with snails in with a hole in the lid obviously um I had grass snakes in a tank I used to have wormeries um we had a school pet shed and if one of the mice had babies I'd scoop them up and take them home and you know release them in all sorts of strange places yes um 
And funnily enough, now I'm not so keen on mice. I don't think I'm, they make me a bit, ooh, you know, now. <laughs> yes. That's an age thing as well. But as a kid, oh, gosh, give me an animal. And I'd have been very happy with that. Anything, insects, ladybirds, dragonflies. Yeah. And you were, it sounds like you're quite keen to share share your joy of these animals. Um, didn't you leave a little treat in one of your teacher's drawers one yes. day? Yes. So I, <laughs> collecting snails was one of my biggest hobbies as a kid, you know, lifting the orbretia and looking for them. Um, I wasn't collecting them because they were a problem in the garden. I just thought they were fantastic. Um, and I filled my teacher's drawer with snails one morning. So I thought, well, this this is lovely. Oh, gosh, I remember her going for chalk rubber and just, yeah, I was in trouble. I didn't quite get why. What's the problem? She didn't share your enthusiasm for mollusks. No, no. <laughs> now, the next thing that I came across in your book was your, your enthusiasm for summer holidays in Spur Hill Avenue. Yeah, yeah. We, they sound um, great. Yeah, my, we had a great aunt, um, who was just the business. She was the best thing. And uh, she lived in this very sort of dilapidated flat in Bournemouth, well, pool, really. And we would head down there every summer. And the reason for including her in the book, really, is her garden was almost the ultimate of what we're all trying to achieve today. Everything was recycled. It was organic, not on purpose, just that was the way it was. Um, all her old welly boots were filled with soil and nasturtiums growing out the top. It was a very limited plant palette. But I think what I loved about that garden is it allowed total freedom. There wasn't anything we weren't allowed to do in it. Um, and that, I was, wanted... that, that was a contrast, wasn't it, between the sort of gardens you'd been total. used to? Yeah, total contrast, because I grew up in a boarding school. My parents worked in a boarding school. Obviously, you've got groundsmen and greens and everything. And obviously, um, my uncle's garden was always immaculate and not really the place you'd get the football out. So this was like, oh, lovely, a garden can be, you know, messed about in. So I think that's why I really valued it, because I thought, although I love beautiful gardens, this was heaven. This was, you know, freedom on another level. So it made quite an impression on you, I expect. Definitely. And I would love the way, um, you know, at Stocksonbury, my uncle would never hitch his climbers up with a pair of tights, but she would. Um, <laughs> and, you know, all the deck chairs were a bit broken and the shed was on a lean, you know, and it was just, yeah, I just think there's so much value in a garden that's lived in. You know, you go to someone's home and you think this is a proper home. Yes. With character. Yeah. It's not been set up or staged. This is how it, it is. Chickens walking around the house, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. Now, that sounds very inspiring. But um, in one of the chapters, you sort of you mentioned that the question that all journalists ask, which is, you know, where 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 was that spark of garden? Where did that spark for gardening first start? Um, and obviously the 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 seed may have been sown a little bit in your auntie's garden but it, it wasn't you didn't have that light bulb moment did you no but I think possibly for me I was very fortunate being in a family where horticulture wasn't completely off pat you know my uncle did garden um my mother always grew flowers for the church so it wasn't a sort of alien hobby but um and I just sort of always did it, but I never really considered it as a career. 
I think I said in the book that I thought I would just marry someone wonderful and I would have to do nothing other than just grow cut flowers and <laughs> you know, keep dogs. But that didn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have that one moment where a lot of people do. I think career changes suddenly think, right, that's it. I've seen that rose. I'm off. I'm leaving my desk. I'm never coming back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was more gradual drip feed for me. Um, yeah. So So definitely not a sort of thunderbolt. <laughs> I think for me, it was sort of waking up in the morning on a bed surrounded by copies of the English Garden and Gardens Illustrated, you know, all scattered over the bed for where I'd been reading them up until midnight and then fallen asleep. And at that point, I thought, you know what, I, I need to do something about this. Yes. <laughs> I need to scratch that itch. This does very Shakespearean lying beds around Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, you mentioned about marrying this man and... Uh, uh, and ending up with dogs and looking after the garden and so on. So, so in the book, you tell us how you went about it, and it, it involved a pig's heart. Yes, yes. So, um, <laughs> gosh, I, I did struggle at school. I was quite, um, I don't know, the odd one out, I suppose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to have a boyfriend, you know, and it never really happened, and everyone else was far more beautiful it seemed and so we were in a, a biology class and I remember it clearly the chap next to me um we were doing a cutting a pig's heart up you know like you did in those days and I was very good at copying people because I was always sort of unsure what am I doing or looking over to this chap next to me and I noticed he'd got soil under his fingernails and he'd got a false tooth and I thought, bingo, this is it. This is my this is my chance for romance, you know. Soil, strange tooth, we've got to be in here. But no, um, but he did have a passion for horticulture. So that was quite interesting. I remember talking him talking about trees all the time. So I thought, right, I'm gonna throw in my tomato growing skills. Um, being the love apple and all that. But no, it it didn't work for me that. But I did think, gosh, maybe, you know, I should find a horticultural husband. (laughs) (laughs) And did you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. well. Yes, yeah. That's that's your school covered. Um, But uh, you went to art college, didn't you? Yes, I did. So, Um, We had the most incredible art teacher at school. Again, something that wouldn't happen now. He was a traditional gypsy. This chap used to turn up on the front drive with his horse and beautiful um, cart. And he would come and teach a sculpture once a week. And well, he was just totally inspiring. I thought he was wonderful. So I loved working with clay and I used to make horses and figures so I thought, right, this is it. This is going to be, I'm going to make, make sculptures. Um, but art college wasn't quite for me. I think I was too young. Um, it was very different from my school life. And I think anyone that's been to art college will know you can't just walk in the door and start creating giant horses out of clay. You have to go through all the processes, all the different medias. And I just, I don't know, I wasn't patient enough. I thought, why haven't I made a galloping horse yet out of, you know, mud? So I left and that's when I probably found horticulture. Yes, because didn't you then go on, I can't remember how it came about, to work in a plant nursery? Yeah, so um, I was sent to live with my grandparents. Well, art college was in Herefordshire, so I was sent to live with my grandparents. 
And I think they live on a farm. They weren't quite sure what to do with me. Like she can't do nothing. You know, she's left college. So we had um, my great uncle, John Treasure, was the clematis breeder at Burford House. So I think they just shipped me up and said, you're going to go and help him. I bet you they were on the phone, weren't they, ringing? Who will have her? (laughs) Anyone, a farmer, anyone. So it was just luck, really, that it was him. So did you go with any resistance or was it, well, that sounds fine? No, I'm pretty pretty chilled. I was never sort of, um, you know, stroppy. So I think I would have thought, well, okay, yeah, that sounds better. That sounds fine. So I went and worked for him and... Really loved it, actually. And I think I had no intention of taking my career any further than just working in a plant nursery or a garden. I didn't have any aspirations of being writer or editor or goodness me, no, never. So just weeding would have been fine. But I mean, what an education working in a nursery. I mean, that is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, were, were you propagating a lot and so on? Um, I remember, if I'm honest, Joff, I remember spending hours untangling clematis. <laughs> and it's put me off growing climbers because there'd be polytunnels on really hot days. We'd sit on little stools and they'd all be growing into each other. So that's my my most lasting memory. Yeah. Trying to sort of remove um, the clematis from the next clematis. They were all like one big necklace that's uh got knotted up um and there was a garden center there so i i did did some work on the tills and it was nice and varied it was a good it was a good platform really i mean that untangling of the clematis goes back to what we were talking about right at the start that sort of that time you know spending time doing these things not getting instant results i mean it's quite a quite a quite a training really isn't it for other things in life yeah um so you stayed there for a while, but did you, didn't you then go up back to Auntie Margie uh, down in yes, Poole? Yes, I did. Yes. Uh, what so, what um, took you down there? Well, I went to, to college. I think Uncle John thought, right, I've had her for nearly a year now. Um, do I need a teenager kicking around? Probably not. So my my family always keen for me to be educated because I didn't do very well at school. I, I didn't do A-levels. You know, I was like, my sister's both lovely and clever and did A-levels, etc. So I was definitely the odd one out in the middle. So he said, probably, and my family would have said, right, she needs to go to college. So they sent me to Sparshall and I was not happy about this at all. I didn't intend to ever sit in a classroom again or or write with a pen. So um, I signed up for the shortest possible course at Sparshall, which was interior landscaping, to get out as quickly as possible, but quickly realised that I absolutely loved college. It was just amazing. So I then signed up for um, decorative horticulture, um, which had a year's placement in the parks. So that's how I ended up down in Bournemouth again. I see. Yes. Yeah. So you were with, um, so you worked on the in the parks department in Bournemouth. I mean, that's a fantastic. Uh, um, experience to have isn't it a lot of um sort of well-known gardeners uh, went through the parks back yeah. in the day i think alan titchmarsh was brought up yeah. in the parks one day and several others um because you you cover such a wide variety of um different disciplines yeah and i think well the knowledge of the people on the parks is second to none you know a lot of them have been there you know for most of their working life um oh gosh the skills I learned I mean I know college is great and everything but actually being on the tools and 
I suppose the other thing that's quite interesting is that most of my teachers, well, pretty much all of them, and the people I learned my skills from, from were men with very, very traditional techniques. And actually, I put a lot of value in that. You know, I learned so much from them. Um, and, you know, I received a lot of generosity and, um, you know, a lot of patience from them, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and also, I think you, you, you learned a great deal about litter picking and vomit scraping, oh, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you see, this, this is one of the reasons for writing this book, is I get so frustrated that people think horticulture is just sort of deadheading in chiffon, you know, and wandering around with cups of tea, and it's all rather lovely. Describing it, my life perfectly. Carry yeah, on. Yeah. It is lovely, but I thought it would be a good idea to lay down on paper the reality of it. I mean, not many people would know that most of the litter, if not all of the litter in our parks, is picked up by gardeners. I mean, it's got to be picked up by someone. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we used to have a pavement each that we would be in charge of, you know, washing the vomit down and emptying the bins. And and I'm really, really glad I had that experience because it makes me appreciate a park so much more and the people that look after it. I mean, gosh, they are so undervalued. It's criminal. Yeah. You, you, you know what goes into... Uh making the park look as beautiful as it yeah. does. Um, didn't you then go on to the greenkeeping team? Yes. So they switched me to the greenkeeping team and I was absolutely devastated because I was so happy in, in the parks. But it was a really good opportunity to see another side of horticulture. Um, and anyone that knows me will know I am not great in the morning. Um, so that was the worst part up at Oh, goodness, no, cycling along the beachfront at five in the morning. Is that to get there before anybody wants to use the facilities, basically? Is that why you yeah, start so early? Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, because, you know, they might want to start playing at 10, 11 in the morning. So obviously it's it's very damp and dewy at that time. So a big part of the job is getting rid of the dew off the greens. And this is where I absolutely found my passion for edging. I love an edger. <laughs> I just can't put them down. My <laughs> uncle always says, oh, she's edging again. But it's it's like, yeah, I just think it's, it, I love an edging tool. So you were there f for some time, but then I think you started heading towards the world of writing. Didn't you then go on to a magazine? Yes. So purely by chance, just sort of knew someone that knew someone that said, can you come and help me unpack some boxes and set up a magazine? And then I stayed as the coffee girl and the person that looked after all the brochures. And then, yeah, just sort of, it was just one of those things that just happened. Definitely not anything I'd intended to do. Um, I mean, the whole idea of an office was just hideous to me. Um, I, I wasn't brilliant at school with you know, GCSEs, etc. So really, it was terrifying, if I'm honest, Joff. <laughs> um, but it was my peers, my friends that weren't horticulturalists that were like, well, crikey, you know, you can't carry on just being a gardener. You better get in. This is a better opportunity. So and, and you know, the money was better, I'll be honest. So I just thought, well, needed to find my own place. Let's give it a go. Which magazine um, was this? Is it still going? No, so ah. it was the garden, and then um, the gardener, not the oh, RHS yes. garden, the gardener. The gardener, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was um, definitely living on my nerves. Now, Fear. well, yeah. e- exactly, because the next thing I was going to mention, you, you, you were asked to uh, appear um, on television, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why on earth they picked me. I think in hindsight, as you get older, so most of the other team was slightly older than me, probably got families, they probably thought, oh, you know, it's such a hassle going up to London last minute, fill the car with this and stress I could do without, send send the junior, you know. This was bre- Breakfast Telly, was it? Yeah, it was some one of Lorraine Kelly's wonderful shows. Um, so, yeah, I feel like my whole career I've been on the edge of my seat and done things that I probably shouldn't be doing or wasn't <laughs> quite up for. And I think that's... Um, that's great, actually, that you you always put yourself, you know, in a challenging position. Um, I mean, who would have thought, you know, you start by litter picking and you end up on breakfast telly? How <laughs> successful I was on breakfast telly is debatable. But, I wonder. Um, I wonder if it's available on YouTube anywhere. <laughs> well, well, don't do it to me. <laughs> so pushing yourself into these positions was something you obviously. Uh in some strange way like the feeling of because you decided to open a shop yeah um I think I'm a Gemini and I do get very excited about ideas I think great I'm really good at coming up with ideas launching them whether I stick at them is another thing but um yeah I'm a sort of yes come on we can do this person even underneath, I might be quaking in my boots. But for some reason, I just thought, wouldn't it be great to have my own little empire, you know, and, and sell gardening gear to people? So I did launch into this in Wimborne. And I found a picture of me, actually, outside my shop the other day. And I looked so ridiculously young. I mean, it was crazy. And um, my parents, I take my hat off to my parents because they never stopped me doing these crazy things which I think as a parent, I probably would. (laughs) Are you sure you're doing the right thing? Yeah, Yeah, let's run through this. Yeah, I know they were just brilliant. I mean, I almost think what was wrong with them? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, they obviously uh, valued, they're just, you know, just letting you out on a long lead or no, letting you off the lead and just getting on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's quite a nice little story, if you can just touch on that, um, about your lovely sign written watering can. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing with anything you do. I think although I love new ideas, now I'm sort of the big five O. If people come to me with an idea, I can see, you know, experience is very valuable, isn't it? And you just think, gosh, you know, that's really not going to be as easy as you think. I think you've been I've been there and I've tried a tremendous amount. So I remember this lovely shop I had. I found an old watering can and I thought I'm going to get it beautifully sign written with the name of the shop and hung up over the door. And it was all sort of rather ceremonious. You know, I've got my watering can above the door. And I arrived the following day and it had been um, kicked around and, you know, some people that were a bit worse for wear had taken it down and kicked it around. (laughs) And, you know, that's life, isn't it? You think it's a bit of a metaphor, really, you know. There's always someone there to try and trip you up and kick your can. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah, you just have to sort of pick up and get on. Well, the shop may have, your your, your watering can may have come to an end and the shop may have come to an end, but you went on to um, become a lecturer next, didn't you? 
You know, it's crazy. That was a baptism of fire, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you were just sort of going through my career and people are listening thinking, how on earth did she ever get that role? But again, <laughs> it was like I had a call when I was running the shop to say, you know, we, we need someone to give a practical demonstration on bulb planting to, you know, 50 students. Could you do it? It's tomorrow. And, you know, the word yes comes out of my mouth like a lunatic. I don't know why. It's crazy. Um, and I ended up doing it. And I thought, gosh, I'd rather like this. And then straight after the lecture, I was pulled into the principal's office and he said, right, could you take on 75 students, you know, for the year? And Muggins here said, yes. I mean, what was I thinking? <laughs> but it was it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Gosh, it was hard work. You you describe it as probably the the sort of, um uh, the most character building year of your life almost yeah i mean yeah. The thing is, you just can't fail with that and, you know p- people are genuine i know you know when you're a magazine editor you have readers and everyone's relying on you but people have given you know they've got their hopes and dreams in your hands you know and you've got to produce the goods really um so it was something i loved and i wish in a way i'd have stuck at but, you know, I might go back to it one day. We'll see. Now, the first time I probably came across your name was um, in mm-hmm. that well-known, <laughs> in, the, in the courts. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, it was uh, in, in the English Garden magazine. You were, you were suddenly editor of this amazing magazine. Yeah. Was that next? Was that after becoming a lecturer? Um, well... No, I ended up on Amateur Gardening magazine. Oh, that that, that was next, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and I vowed I'd never work for a weekly because it always I'd worked in an office next to a weekly, and I always sort of realised, crikey, this is serious stuff here. Um, so yeah, and uh, I thought, oh come on. My grandmother always used to say to me, "When are you going to work for the book?" She used to think, you know, Amateur Gardening was the business, oh, that, right. the magazine. And I think she was right. It's got the most amazing history. Um, and I I did work for them and I ended up absolutely falling in love with the week, the concept of a weekly because it's so it's so relevant. You know, it's printed so close to the deadline. And actually, I loved the buzz of the turnaround. So, yes, yeah, so I worked there. And then after I've been there a few years, that's when I got the call about, um, you know, applying for the English Garden. Yes. Now that that you, you you were offered the job rather unexpectedly, weren't you? Yeah. On your second interview, you weren't quite expecting it, but uh, okay. it, it involved a bit of a commute from your home uh, in mm-hmm. Her- in Herefordshire. But you 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 know, and I think you looked at options of moving there, etc. But of course, Cheltenham, which is the base for uh, an English garden, is incredibly expensive. So yeah. so you carried on commuting, and uh, in style, I will add, you you commuted by scooter. Yes, that's quite an entertaining chapter in the book. Um, not many people know that I did that because it was it was a slightly embarrassing, uh, you know, experience. But I think most of my team commuted in. You know, a lot of people commute into Cheltenham, um, and we all have many stories to tell about the dramas of snow and ice and uh, trying to find free parking, etc. So, yeah. So you parked on the outskirts of Cheltenham and then scooted in, although I gather you didn't do it for long, did you? No, no, that was a very short episode in my life. Not the most comfortable commute. Um, but you do look back and you think, how did I do that? 
you know, how did I do that commute with a young son? You think, crikey, you know, the things I think we've all done things that you look back and you think, I don't know what I was, how did I, yeah, get through the week? That sort of job must be, you must have been under a huge amount of pressure again, although you although you had a month rather than a week to uh, fill yeah. the pages, you know, you still had deadlines to hit. And uh, yeah. what sort of, I mean, you know, without giving a full job description, what sort of work is involved in being an editor of a, of a, one of the top well, I think magazines? It's, it's enormous. Um, and people think, oh, you must go out and visit lots of gardens and write lovely articles. Well, to be honest, when you're editing, that's the last thing you're doing. You're managing staff deadlines, um, talking to advertisers, looking at promotions. Um, oh, it's it's endless. And of course, now um, I was at the tail end of things when they were introducing apps and newsletters and Twitter and social media. I mean, now the workload must be way more. You know, you've got websites and the pressures of getting social media up there. And I would say now it's like a, we call them 360 brands. There's all sorts, they're like a sort of hub in the middle. The magazine is just the heart of it. And there's like a million legs coming off with all these things um, that you're responsible for. We've probably got lots of people listening who, uh, who are gardeners, who've got stories to tell and want to tell. Any very quick tips if they're approaching a busy editor yeah. To, to, to ask for, you know, some space in the magazine for this amazing article they've written. What's the, what's the top couple of tips? It's very difficult. Don't be disheartened is the first thing I would say. You know, there's a lot of things coming into editors and I've just explained how ridiculously busy they are. Um, but I would say to you, it's a lot about the pictures as well. So there's no good writing a fabulous article about a rare plant and you've got no images, you don't know where the images are, that, you know, that's not going to happen very easily. What they're looking for is they want to see that you've got photography or you can get photography or somebody's, um, it's a possibility. But also, I think the most important thing is spend time with that magazine, reading it, looking at their style. Don't send something that's totally off the wall to a magazine that has very steady content so you need to pick your magazine and maybe rewrite the article for each title but it, it isn't easy I would say to you get your work published in local magazines local you know get get cut your teeth um yeah. anywhere you can so you can say look I've been published here or I've got an amazing blog or um give them something somewhere else to find you you know if they like your idea what would catch an editor's attention to get a, 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 an email noticed? I mean, do you write it in fluorescent orange and, and it flashes or, or is it more the subject matter? I mean, do editors have the time to look at all these uh, pictures? Probably not. Yeah. Um, but there may be someone on the staff that does. I would imagine it's the same as pitching a book to a publisher. You know, um, you've just got to keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be different for each magazine. If it's a weekly, they might be absolutely delighted that you're going to show them, you know, how to propagate orchids because it's like fantastic. They've got a lot more content to find and quickly. Um, but I think the pictures is is vital and also um, offer them something new. You know, if you're going to talk to them about vine weevil, is there a new way of solving it that hasn't been published anywhere before? Have you got like a different spin, you know, something 
new, unique, not been written about before is always appealing, I would have thought. Now, I'm jumping forward somewhat now um, to to more recent years to lockdown, the lockdown years. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know whether you suddenly had a a brainwave or something, but you you suddenly thought, ah, online uh, lectures, I can give talks online. So you started offering these talks, I mean, internationally online and and it worked. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I do help fundraise with a festival for our local hospice which was obviously cancelled um at st michael's in herefordshire so um i thought gosh you know there must be something i can do because they've got a fabulous garden there they're trying to raise funds for um so i went to the hospice and said you know is there anything i can do i don't know could i give a talk i mean zoom was like almost it was right at the beginning i wouldn't even know what it was um, and I thought, well, what about, is there any way of doing a talk online? And then this brilliant IT man, of course, said, well, haven't you heard of Zoom? But right, OK. Um, so I said, well, could we try selling tickets? Could we give it a go? Um, and we did. And it worked really well. Um, so it was new for them. It was new for me. Uh, and I thought, gosh, this, this could be this could be good because we've all got to try and earn some money, haven't we, some way. Or another. Because I suppose at this point, the garden you're now working in, which we sort of touched on at the start, yeah. Stoughtonbury, was, was closed to the public. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was obviously doing a little bit there, but nothing like what I normally do. Um, and I'm not very good at sitting doing nothing. I thought I've got to do something. So, yes, yeah, so that was the start of it, really. Um, but what's so entertaining is how stressed we all were about it. You know, how many times we double check this and triple check that. And can I, you know, what if the line goes down? Can I ring you? You know, it, it was just um, we were almost hysterical about it. You would have thought we were arranging, you know, some amazing <laughs> world leaders conference and not a Zoom to a garden club in Chepstow, for example. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was brilliant, really, and it's enabled me to speak to American groups, Japanese groups, Irish groups. It's been, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah, I think I think it's so true what you say. We, we spend more time worrying about uh, the tech than than what we're going to say. What we're going to say isn't the issue, is it? it no. it's, it's will the tech work? Will people hear me? Will people see me? Yeah, it's it, yeah. it's the same with uh, you know if you visit a garden club, isn't it? And take your projector and your laptop and uh, oh, yeah. God, have I got the cable? Is it going to work? You know? I know. I know. <laughs> we, we've all we've all been there. Um, but in around twenty twenty, um, you you brought out was it your first book, the Diary of a Modern Country Gardener? Yes, yes. So um, I wrote that previous to lockdown from the potting bench at Stocktonbury really just um I just thought oh I better write notes you know about what's happening weather wise and plant wise or I'll forget and it might be useful one day and um I was working for orphans occasionally trying to help them promote a beautiful snowdrop book um the galanthophiles and um sort of saying right who could you send it to for coverage etc and uh the publisher said to me have you ever written a book and I said no um, obviously, I've written loads of gardening things and helped with books, but not actually had my own. And uh, I said, I've written, I write this silly diary for myself. And she said, oh, let me have a look. And she said, I look, get on with it. This is great. Come on. So <laughs> suddenly, but because I really, really wanted to write it in real time. 
So when I've written an entry for May the 10th, it was written on May the 10th. So I, and I think with this book, I really want things to be real. I'm not very good at, um, you know, making things up. It's great to, to sort of really pull from real life. I find that is my, what I enjoy writing is, is real life, really. Now, uh, in rather adverse weather conditions, you dragged your, well, you didn't drag because you went on ahead, but then your family made it down to London for the, for the launch at Hatchards, didn't, yeah. didn't yeah. they? And it was quite yeah. funny that you were sort of itching to get there. They were sort of doodling along, weren't they? Um, but you eventually yeah. got there and you, you were rather, it was rather impressive, wasn't it? There were people there waiting for yeah. Tamsin Westhorpe. I know. I mean, it was just one of those moments in life where you think, this is ridiculous. And when I sort of look back at my career and think, you know, I was the girl no one knew what to do with and gave me a litter pick sort of thing, and I'm standing in Hatchards, it's crazy. Um, and I think what's so lovely is when I first put on Twitter about this book, I had quite a few people DM me and say, oh, you know, I'm in my 40s. Is it too late for me to career change? And I thought, oh, good. What I want the book to do is make people think um, that they might still have time to career change, that horticulture might be for them, and uh, but not necessarily in the way that they assumed. There's a lot of things I've done that you wouldn't possibly instantly assume would be the first choice. You went on, I can't remember what point it, it, it fits in, but you went on to become an RHS judge, didn't you? Yeah, was that Chelsea or various other yeah. shows? Well, various other shows. So I do Chelsea, Morgan, Tatton, whatever they want me to do. But again, that was just unbelievable. You know, you have to sort of pinch yourself every year. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know why I've been fortunate to have these opportunities. Um, and I think possibly because I have had quite an eclectic career, Um uh, and, you know, I suppose there aren't that many people that have been gardening since 16, doing so many different varied <laughs> successes and failures in the industry. Um, so, again, I think my realistic head is quite useful as a judge. You know, I know how to maintain a garden. And if I see something that I think, well, there's a lawn in the middle of a pond, you know, on an island, you and I would know. How are you going to get there? Yeah. <laughs> how are you going to mow that? So I think that's... Um, probably why I'm reasonably useful. So up to date, I mean, you were, another reason I know you, of course, is um, you were joint chair, chair lady of the uh, uh, Garden Media Guild. Yeah. Um, a, a position you've now stepped down from and passed on to Mike Palmer. Um, yeah. So you're st spending, I assume, more time at Stocktonbury now, when, you, when you're not writing, of course. Yeah, more time at Stocktonbury. Um, I've also become honorary president of a charity called Growing Point in Herefordshire. Um, so that's very exciting. So it's very early days for me there. Um, and they provide gardening for people with all sorts of learning difficulties or, or physical difficulties. Um, and it's an amazing charity. I know them well. They were actually on one of my uh, episodes. I spoke, oh, to brilliant. I, I spoke to them when they were at um, the Malvern Show one year. Yeah. Yes, yeah. They were yeah. a lo lovely group to talk to. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in and seeing what I can do for them. Um, I do a lot of talks, but I mean, my main focus really is is Stocktonbury. Um, 
lot to do a four acre garden <laughs> yeah so people can come and visit that garden have a look around what what uh, are you open all year or for six or eight months no, of the we year open, um april the first till the end of september yeah so i'm just about to head into my very busy gardening time yeah, yeah so autumn is full on for me yes but we love to see a visitor obviously and uh do a few courses there and so it's it's lovely place to come and visit so we've heard about your eclectic career what's next oh i don't know joff big question i don't know bit, bit of do a rest know. just carry well, on gardening yeah i mean i i obviously want to continue to focus on the garden i do love doing lecturing and talks so that's something i'd like to do more of um yeah but you know obviously you've picked up that i'll say yes to pretty much anything um so yeah, I mean, you just don't know. It's when you're a freelancer, you have periods of being quite quiet, and you start to panic, and then suddenly, you know, too much comes in. So it's um, quite an exciting, unpredictable lifestyle. So yes, who knows? Really, is is the thing. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to wish you good luck with your new book grasping the nettle tales from a modern country garden now, where, when's the launch and where is it oh do you know we're still umming and ahhing about yeah. that yeah so we, we have nothing to say on that yet um but it comes out as you've said in october if you pre-order it you get invited to a zoom i'm doing which oh. you can pick my brains on careers and anything really oh well so, yeah. um you just have to uh send your receipt or your proof of order to uh bonus at orphanspublishing.co.uk right thank you you'll be able to come onto the zoom um but yes yeah, it's, it's available you know it'd be great if you buy it from your independent bookshop order yeah. it we need to give them all the support we can yeah absolutely it's very easy just to uh click that button on a certain well-known store on your laptop yeah. but uh i often ask my local little bookshop to get things in and they're they're in the next day anyway so uh you yeah. know it, it's lovely to do it that way tamsin thank you so much for your time i know it's very valuable when you're looking after a four acre garden so well, I mean, it's it really just, lovely thank you you're the first person i've spoken to about the book so this Yay. Is very exciting <laughs> i've got a scoop beautiful. You've got a scoop. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Thank you, John. No, thank you, in. Good luck. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll see you around. Oh, uh, well, we've got the uh, the Malvern show coming up. Are you going to be there this year? Probably not, because no? when you have an open garden, you no. are there. So, mm. yeah, unfortunately, I might miss that one, which is okay. frustrating. Well, I won't see you there, but hopefully we'll bump into each other soon. Maybe at the uh, awards at the Savoy yes, in November. Definitely. At the yeah. Garden Media Guild Awards for anybody that uh, wonders what we're talking about. So I'll definitely see you there. Um, Tamsin, thank you very much. How lovely was that? What an amazing career in horticulture Tamsin has had. Tamsin's often found on Instagram, where she's under her name Tamsin Westhorpe, and that will take you to Stocktonbury Gardens too. I can be found at joffelfic.co.uk as well as on Instagram. Don't forget, I travel most weeks to garden clubs to give my intriguingly named talk Crayfish on the Lawn. And please, if you haven't yet had a look, pop over to genus.gs and have a look at how you can transform your gardening experience by wearing clothes specifically designed by gardeners for gardeners. Thanks for listening. 
In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your lawn edges better than Stocksonbury, if that's possible, and your career as enjoyable and interesting as Tamsin's. I'll see you next time. <laughs>